Welcome to this episode of Miss Law Explains Things. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Miss Law Explains Things. So, very sorry for the one week break thing that I had. Uh, but I just wanted to actually get into some of the issues that we've been talking about, I think, in tutorials and lectures. So I'm sure that we have already learned about how expansionary fiscal and monetary policies seem to be the appropriate policy stance in the context of, for example, recessions or slowing economic growth. But we've realised that one thing that really limits the ability of a government to use expansionary fiscal policy is the idea of government debt. So the article that I'm looking at is actually from the Straits Times and shared with one shared by one of my students with me and I found it actually very, very interesting because it talks about the idea of government debt. So we know that actually from a particular perspective, we want to actually employ expansionary fiscal policy in order to increase aggregate demand. But however, one of the one of the contextual uh, factors that might actually limit the effectiveness of expansionary fiscal policy is the fact that we might be starting to accumulate national debt. So the article actually begins with these five words by the US President Joe Biden, which says that it will cost us dearly because all of his uh, expansionary fiscal policy or the fact that America is running a budget deficit has a price tag of US $1.9 trillion. And this is going to come on the heels of yet another fiscal package that has been passed by the US Congress last month. And adding up all of the stimulus that the U.S. actually has been using in recent times is going to make up about a quarter of U.S. gross domestic product. So that doesn't sound like much because if we think of it from a 25% kind of perspective, it's not much. But the U.S. GDP is actually uh, very, very much larger than we think it is. So because of the fact, I think, that the U.S. government has not been uh, financing its deficit maybe in a more appropriate way, the fiscal deficit has trebled in the financial year of 2020 and it is just growing. So basically the deficit is growing because government spending is continuing to increase and they're not collecting enough taxation revenue. So for a government, there are just a few ways right, that it can use to finance its deficit. Number one, it can perhaps uh, finance the deficit by borrowing from uh, the financial sector uh, within its country, but that might result in the crowding out effect because it may crowd out uh, private investment and private consumption, right? On the other hand, if it does not want to do so and does not want to result in this crowding out effect, it can actually turn to other countries to borrow, right? Or it can just decide that it's going to run uh, even greater and greater debt. So government debt uh, is also another way of looking at accumulated fiscal deficits. So for the US, it has been growing steadily, right? It has doubled, for example, during the global financial crisis and even more during World War II. But interestingly, the US is not the only country with exploding levels of debt. Data from the IMF shows that now there are at least 30 countries with gross debt levels greater than 100% of the GDP. And if you think about it, it's just like any one of us. For example, if you were to earn $50, now you're saying that the amount that I owe is more than $50. Right? Maybe I owe $70, but I'm only earning 50, so I can't even pay back all of my debts. Right. So interestingly, for a lot of countries, this is getting a more and more significant issue. And until recently, this would have triggered a lot of red alerts right, in finance ministries and central banks because this is actually a very important problem. If we are running a large government uh, budget deficit and it's accumulating so much that we're getting into debt, then it's going to have a very negative impact on investor confidence 
and in the willingness and ability of foreign investors to invest in our economy. So this has led to a very important re-examination of the way that fiscal policy works. And the conclusion has come from like a whole host of prominent economists, which is that rising government deficits and debts in advanced economies may need to rise further, which is contrary to what we think. right? So interestingly, we have to get to the heart of exactly why there are so much fears over all of this debt. And the fear that has actually kind of been put forward is that of fiscal expansion, okay, which is going to lead to unsustainable debt loads, but that's only misplaced in current circumstances. So for one thing, right, we actually have learned this before, by the way, the interest rates are near zero. So that is one of the limitations of expansionary monetary policy if you are lowering interest rates. And remember, not all countries do. Singapore does not. Singapore, exchange, Singapore is more of an exchange rate-centered uh, monetary policy stance. But for other countries, for example, in the Eurozone and Japan, they actually became near zero or became negative. And because of that, the amount of debt that can be tolerated is much higher than in normal circumstances. Right? Because these people no longer have to pay back interest on some of these assets. Right? Interest rates are so, zero, so close to zero. So interest rates actually play a very important role in different ways. So number one is like the cost of borrowing because we want to stimulate consumption and investment. And at the same time, it's also the rate of return on any investment that we do. So if the rate of return is so low, right, it also means that anybody that owns you know, all of these government bonds which are used to finance the government budget deficit or the spending, right, no longer the government has to pay such a high rate of interest. So it kind of works for them in, in a way. They don't have to pay back uh, as much. So as an example, the article talks about the Biden administration, which was able to borrow for 10 years at only like about 1%, which is like the yield on the 10-year treasury bonds. Treasury bonds in, is actually another word for government bonds in the U.S. And this compares with a borrowing cost of about 4% much earlier in late 2008. That means that actually the Biden administration can actually sa safely take on a greater amount of debt than what would have been acceptable maybe 12 years ago. And interestingly, this brings me to a very important point and that we're probably going to cover very soon in our lecture and you know, in terms of what we're going to talk about in class, which is the debt-to-GDP ratio. Right, so the debt-to-GDP ratio actually gives us an idea of how serious or how severe the debt problem is, and it's a guide to policy, but it may ignore the level of interest rates. Okay? So even though debt-to-GDP ratio tells us something about the size of debt, we also need to think about the role of interest rates. Another reason, according to some economists, is that debt is also a stock of obligations that have been aggregated over several years, but it is only measured at a particular point in time. So GDP only refers to one year's national income, but the debt can be paid back over time. It does not have to be paid back all at once. So if we just use debt to GDP ratio as a measure, we only have a snapshot of time, or we can only look at something at one particular point in time, and that may not give us a very holistic or accurate measure of the country's ability to repay its debt, because in the end, we'll still take some time to do so. So if we compare the debt to the GDP, it should be compared with the present value of all of our future GDP. The lower the interest rate now, the higher the future value of GDP because when interest rates are low, right, GDP increases faster and that makes sense. If I were to ask you a question now, explain why GDP increases faster when interest rates are low, you will probably say something about expansionary monetary policy, lowering the rate uh, of borrowing, right, lowering the cost of borrowing to increase consumption and investment. But thankfully, if GDP can grow faster than debt, which is interesting and is probably an evaluation point we can use, 
If it can grow faster than debt, thanks to the low interest rate, the debt will shrink relative to the size of the economy. Because debt is now actually you have to pay back less, right? Because the rate of interest or uh, the rate of uh, you know having to repay some of these uh, creditors is going to reduce. But at the same time, the interest rates were fueling economic growth. So let me just repeat this again. The low interest rate is trying to fuel economic growth. But on the other hand, the low interest rates helps us to actually reduce the size of our debt. So interestingly, that has been the approach for a lot of uh, American politicians which should spend big now and pay down the debt later. Okay. And another important thing is that, you know, the debt to GDP metric that we always use, right, is actually does not very, does not accurately reflect future policies. So at, at a certain point in time, it may be possible that in the future, we don't know whether there are any mitigating policies in place. For example, tax increases or spending cuts may happen down the road. But as we know, debt to GDP is quite a static measure. And GDP is at a certain point in time, but debt is something that can be paid over time. So it's more of a flow concept rather than a stock concept. And going back to also the context that in a lot of advanced economies, monetary policy is already uh, not as effective as we think it can be because interest rates are already at the zero lower bound. And also the fact that recession is ongoing, a lot of countries understandably cannot afford to undertake fiscal expansion. So the debt will go up, GDP will also go up. Okay, and then it's always about the relative change in debt and GDP, right? Because if the debt is not going as uh, it's not going up as fast as GDP, we might be able to bring down our debt to GDP ratio. So Biden's administration of this US 1.9 trillion economic package is actually very heavily skewed towards raising demand, providing a huge boost to the economy, even though we know that there's a lot of fiscal deficit and public debt. Those are inevitable consequences, right, of trying to spend more and not actually having budget surpluses to kind of draw upon. And that is where I actually draw the difference between Singapore and the US. So for Singapore, we have been financing a lot of our budget deficits based on the accumulation of past budget surpluses. So we have actually saved for a rainy day and now we are activating like our emergency fund. On the other hand, for countries such as the US, it is quite a different story because they have not accumulated budget deficits and uh, accumulated budget surpluses, sorry, and therefore they have to run down all the reserves and maybe they have already been having deficits for the past like you know, tens of years, maybe even since World War II, okay? So, interestingly, some information that's given here is that real GDP growth will be nearly 8% this year, double growth, growth that would be expected without the fiscal support, which means that it's actually very important. If we can double economic growth to fiscal support, that's actually quite a big thing. Next year's growth will be about 4%, which will help to bring the economy almost back to full employment, a year sooner than if there was no fiscal support. So if you were to be of that particular group of people that say fiscal support is not necessary, well, this data is showing you that no, without it, right, the economic recovery will be very, very slow. So in response to the stronger economy, you know that actually what we have learned is that the US Federal Reserve would start to normalize monetary policy, which means to move away from its very eased stance, right, and go towards a tightening of the policy, such as raising interest rates. And why would they be raising interest rates? Because of the possibility of inflationary pressures when the economy goes into overheating. And that is in line with what the article is saying, where it says that inflation will be firmly above the Fed's target. The Fed refers to the Federal Reserve, which is the name of the central bank in the United States of America. Okay? And it's going to be firmly above the target of 2%. So the Federal Reserve is going to proceed slowly, much like what MAS does as well, a very phased increase. It's just that they are controlling different things. 
the Federal Reserve adjusts the interest rate, MES adjusts the exchange rate. We are all adjusting different levers of expansionary monetary policy, or whether it's contractionary in a sense or so, and we are all trying to achieve similar outcomes. It's just that we're using slightly different tools in our toolbox. So the Fed will phase this out and before it reaches its long-run target. Okay? Which means that because these uh, Fed rates are actually increasing such a slow rate, uh, debt servicing costs will continue to be negative. So that will actually allow the increase in debt that the US actually has accumulated to serve its purpose of bringing the economy out of recession and back to full employment. So that is actually a lot of the uh, policy considerations that the US has. On the other hand, this is actually a very important shift in perspective because it suggests that debt is not something that governments should always shun. And I think this is a great article in the sense that it actually tends to uh, shift our perspective and forces us to rethink what we think about debt. Because we always think that debt is a very bad thing, but we actually have to look a little bit closer at the circumstances Right, and realize that it might not be a bad thing if other conditions are in place. Right? For example, if the debt servicing costs go down or if GDP rises faster than the debt. Right? In a low interest rate environment, actually this can be a very potent weapon against recession and a tool to reinvigorate the economy. There may be a lesson here for countries that have little or no net debt, as I said just now, such as Singapore. And it was encouraging to see that earlier this month, uh, the parliament also approved a significant increase in the cap of government borrowing via treasury bills. So allowing us to actually finance more of our government spending through government borrowing and borrowing in government securities. Okay? But of course, there was this uh, very important emphasis that the borrowings will be invested and will not increase the amount available for government spending. So the kind of borrowing that we do is for the long term and not to fund short-run you know, expenditure. So it will produce a net benefit because our returns on investment will hopefully exceed our borrowing costs, right? And that will actually help us to uh, increase our long-run economic growth, right? While by, by doing it in a very responsible way, right? Fiscal prudence or so. Also, because interest rates are so low and are likely to remain so until at least 2023, the government will also want to reconsider its traditional aversion to using borrowing for spending purposes because we are actually more conservative in a sense where we technically don't try and overspend or spend out of our means. Okay? But maybe we might want to move towards this particular type of our economic policy. Okay? So another kind of policy that was actually used in Singapore's context is a job guarantee scheme under which the government creates guaranteed jobs uh, for the unemployed without replicating jobs created by the private sector, which I think is quite interesting because there's a lot of duplication because there are a lot of different jobs that actually fulfill the same purpose and uh, because of the fact that maybe there's a lack of coordination between the private and public sector, we might actually have the same jobs coming up. But a job guarantee scheme, I think, has the intended objectives of reducing inequality and enhancing the social resilience. So borrowing at close to 0% to fund such of all of these initiatives because money seems to have to come from somewhere still, right? To fund these initiatives, right? Borrowing at a very low rate actually is actually a possible policy, even if it means incurring a bit of net debt, right? In a recession, maintaining a net debt of zero is not an optimal policy. And I find that a very interesting statement, right? And a very impactful one as well. Because it is very hard for us to really go into the idea of a net debt of zero because we still have to finance future spending and the money has to come from somewhere. All that said, there are a lot of caveats to the view of debt being beneficial, which is basically what we are more used to. It is not necessarily the case for certain countries which do not control their own currencies, which means that they no longer control the exchange rate. 
So this applies to countries in the Eurozone that all adopt the Euro, right? So they have actually, they kind of given up control over the exchange rate to a central authority known as the European Central Bank. So countries like Italy and Greece that, Greece that rely on the Euro, right, which they don't control, have run into debt problems as a result because they no longer have that particular lever to adjust. So high levels of debt in these countries can be dangerous because they are already fiscally stretched, right? And they are very prone to capital flight and currency depreciation. Okay, once they are prone to capital flight and currency depreciation, right, markets start to lose confidence uh, in the government's ability to service debt. And investor confidence is actually very important. This also happens if debt is used for unproductive purposes, such as financing property booms and propping up all of the zombie companies in the Asian financial crisis. So low-income countries with little fiscal space and very high amounts of government expenditure may not be able to take on more debt. And in fact, they need to relieve their debt, which means they need to draw down their debt. But on the other hand, just wanted to end off on this particular note, for a country with a very high credit rating, such as Singapore, a very stable currency, and a reputation for sound economic policies, it is actually not a very, very uh, unlikely thing or un. Uh, expected thing for us to be able to take on more public debt because there is both benefits and costs to taking on more public debt and the ability of a government or a country to take on that debt really depends on its underlying macroeconomic fundamentals right as was as just been explained so i think that this is a very good article right for us to think a little bit deeper about what government debt is its purpose as well as its benefits and costs and it presents a very new and insightful discussion about what government debt is, right, as well as whether or not we need to reconsider our view. And I think that, you know, in context of what we are discussing in class, as well as in recent times, this is the direction in which I think a lot of questions are going in. Because we have to rethink our traditional mindset or traditional perspectives, and we have to apply application of, you know, real-world context and real-world events to the theory that we have learned. So I hope that this particular episode has helped you to gain a more in-depth understanding of what government debt is and why we might be have to rethink uh, this particular part of our discussion. So thank you very much and I will see you in our next episode.